and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate it if you go over to iTunes and write us a review. Hopefully, you give us five stars as you write that review. iTunes really does help us as we continue to build this out and help this podcast get to people that have never heard of me and have never heard of the podcast. So go over there, write us a review. We will be forever grateful if you would do that for us. Also, if you like today's conversation, please share this conversation. Share it on social media. Share it with a friend. Send a text. Send an email. The more that we share these conversations, and today's is a, a deep and rich conversation, uh, the more inspired we can all become at being our best intentional selves. So thank you all for being here, and I hope you all continue to be the best intentional performer that you possibly can be. Now to today's guest. Derek Fitzgerald was connected to me by a former podcast guest, Charlie the Spaniard Brenneman. And if you enjoyed that conversation, you're going to love this conversation with Derek. He is a survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, heart failure, and ultimately a heart transplant. After receiving his life-saving transplant in 2011, Derek entered the world of endurance sports and became dedicated to helping others going through their own healthcare journeys. He's an advocate for cancer research, heart health, an organ donation. He's going to talk about the organ donation and how that really helped change his life and transform his life in a massive, massive way. He founded the Recycled Man Foundation, a nonprofit organization created to improve quality of life for those affected by significant health challenges, in addition to serving on the board of several charities. Since 2011, Derek has upheld his life's mission to honor his donor's gift. He has completed over 90 endurance events, including a coast-to-coast bike ride. I'm laughing as I talk about this because it's just unbelievable. And multiple Ironman races. If you're unfamiliar with what Ironman races are, please go Google Ironman races. Uh, He's also 
completed the prestigious world championship in Kona, Hawaii, which is a very big deal. He's the only cancer survivor and heart transplant recipient to complete a full Ironman distance race. He lives in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and he's going to talk about what he does when he's not speaking, and we're going to get into his personal life a little bit. But he's he has a five-year-old and is married, and Derek is just somebody who is living life to the fullest and has handled his adversity with unbelievable grit, determination, and perspective. So you're going to love this conversation with Derek. You're going to be inspired by it, and hopefully it moves you to take control and ownership over your health and of your life. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Derek Fitzgerald. Derek, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, Really excited to chat with you. Jake Thompson, who we were just talking about before we fired up the mics, told me, hey, Derek is somebody who I think you're going to love chatting with. And then I checked out your website and learned a little bit about your story. And I think this is going to be a really fascinating conversation, a meaningful conversation, and a conversation that will hopefully give people a lot of perspective on themselves and and how they're showing up every single day um, and how they're showing up to be their best. Where I'd love to start with you, though, is to get some background on who you were as a kid and what life was like for you as a child and just paint the picture for what life was like for you uh, growing up. Well, if you picture the standard suburban, uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, perfect picturesque town. I I mean, I I grew up in a blue collar area. Uh, I had cornfields all around my house. All the kids were out on their 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 bicycles all the time uh and i played soccer growing up it was uh i I probably wasn't the best student uh but i it was one of those things where i enjoyed school i i probably had uh little i was too smart for my for my own good uh to to put it the nicest way i i really didn't pay attention much but uh you know, I was smart enough to get through on, on the tests and everything like that. So um, I, I grew up through soccer and then uh, in my high school years, changed schools and uh, started up with the band. My father uh, was a music in the marching band. And uh, from there, I, I went into college and I followed a girl into college, not because I wanted to go to college, because I wanted to follow a girl. And I, I signed up for a university, I signed up to go to college where she was going because I thought they had a film program. I was accepted. Then I did the campus visit and found out that there wasn't a film program. Why, why, why were you interested in film? I have always been in, interested in film. I, I wanted to be a filmmaker growing up. And uh, I was the kid that was, instead of doing book reports, I got all my friends together and we would make a movie based upon the book and my teachers accepted it. So it was, it, it was, uh, it was always a way of getting out of work to do fun stuff. Do you remember the first video camera you got and what that was like for you? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I borrowed my parents' uh, VHS handy cam that they had. It was a, I think it was a Sony and and so I would go around and I would shoot everything. And, and like I said, um, great expectations, book report, you know, Pip and Estella and all, you know, everybody was a buddy of mine. And uh, 
we got the girls involved, we got the guys involved. Um, when there weren't enough girls, because we were just dorky guys, uh, we'd have the guys dress up like girls and put on a, a you know, talk and falsetto. And it was just, it was silly, it was fun. And uh, we usually got really good grades because we were just stupid. And what, what did mom and dad do for a living? Well, uh, my dad taught music and my mom was uh, an office manager. Uh, so she would go from business to business and, and run their offices. And you mentioned playing soccer and being in the band. What were those things like for you as a kid? Soccer was extremely competitive for me. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, teams that I was on happened to be fairly good. Uh, won state champs and all that stuff. Uh, every now and again, I, 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 was, uh, I, I played soccer but I was more of the enforcer type on the team. I played defense and my goal was to be the Lyle Alzado. I'm dating myself here, but the Lyle Alzado of soccer fullbacks. So whenever anybody on the other team was getting out of line or getting a little too chippy, uh, they would receive an extra check from me or, you know, maybe a, a, you know, a little extra harder follow through on a kick that happened to hit them. You know, I was, I was not the nicest person on the field. Hopefully that was balanced out by how I was off the field. But, uh, you know, um, I well, want, well, I'm just curious, Derek, why were you like that on the soccer field? Uh, it was just competitive drive. Um, I wanted to win and, you know, I wanted to be part of a team. And my friends and I, you know, we, we were a, a, a core unit. And when they messed with them, they were, you know, if they messed with anybody on the team, they were messing with all of us. And it was up to us to stand up for ourselves. And uh, does that come from mom? Does that come from dad? Does that come from your friends? Where do you think that, that spirit came from? I have, I, I don't know. That's a good question. It, it, probably my dad, uh, just from a musician perspective, he was extremely competitive, um, wanted to make sure that, that he was doing everything he could at all times to be the best he could possibly be. Um, and that probably rubbed off on me. Did you have any siblings? No, only child. So only child, so spending a lot of time with mom and dad. And then it sounds like your friends, you were spending a lot of time with your friends growing up as well. Yes, I was, uh, you know, for the most part, I was a latchkey kid. So as soon as I was able to take care of myself, I was out from the babysitter perspective and, and, uh, and on my own. So I would spend, it was, it was the days and you see, I see tons of memes about it now, but my parents would say to me, be home by the time the streetlights come on. And so for all day, every day I was out running, hiking, having adventures, uh, with my, my, with my friends. And was being in the band something you wanted to do or was that more dad's sort of wishes? So it was a weird situation. I had just finished uh, winning state champs on the soccer team in my previous school. We move locations, go to a new school and the soccer team was still under development uh, and they were just not where I was accustomed to being. And then I went through the lot this high school. I could play. I was in the concert band. I was in the jazz band because I, you know, being a, a music teacher's kid, I, I knew a lot about music. I was walking through the lobby of the school and I see all the banners and the trophies of state champs, uh, you know, the marching band. 
state champ marching band, state champ marching band for the previous however many years before I had gotten there. And I was like, well, I want to be on the winning team. So I chose not to go with soccer and I joined the marching band. And uh, it, it was a bit of a left turn, but, uh, you know, continued to win. I enjoyed the team aspect. I enjoyed winning. And, uh, and I took to it like a, a fish in water, I suppose, because I had had all the, the, the years and years of training uh, being in concert band and being a mu- music teacher's kid. As you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about this a little bit more where you, you clearly care about winning at a young age. And so, so much so that you're going to shift your focus from a, a sport to, to, to being in the band. Mm-hmm. As you look back on that version of yourself, how much of that version is similar to how you think about winning today and how much is different? Um, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I like winning, um, but it's, it's not the all encompassing drive behind who I am and what I do. Um, I think I really wanted to be in a, in a scenario where I had a good team of people around me and was able to do, was able to work really hard to do things that ultimately I enjoyed doing. That was fun to me. Um, so to that extent, I'm still that way to this day. I enjoy, uh, working within a team. I enjoy doing everything that I can do to push the team forward. And, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that one, uh, in the, in those terms. Yeah. Because competition and competing, it can be a zero sum game. Like I won, you lost. But but oftentimes, winning is not necessarily only about the output of winning. Uh, sometimes we need to lose in order to win. Sometimes we need to fail in order to have success. And so it's just an interesting perspective because it was so clear for you in high school. It's like, oh, there are the banners. I'm switching gears so that I can win, right? And as we get into your story a little bit, I, I, maybe we'll we'll circle back to this as as we continue to unpack who you are and how you become you, um, because I think it's a really fascinating conversation. In that, I think most sixteen year olds, um, it is black and white, right? Like you won the game or you lost the game. And having worked with a lot of sixteen year olds, it's hard to have any perspective other than that. Mm-hmm. And there's value in learning that. There's value in I'm competing to win at and do whatever it takes to, to get our team to have a trophy. And as we get older and we gain perspective, that there is a long game that is being played that is not so instant in the gratification of winning. And so it's, a, it's going to be an interesting conversation, and we'll circle back to it as we go forward. Sure. You, you mentioned you followed a girl in college. Sure. Uh, what ended up happening with that girl? Well, uh, we dated and, uh, I mean, we were dating before she went for college, uh, went to college. I, I wasn't stalking her, uh, across the state. Um, and ultimately we got married after several years of dating. Um, the marriage ultimately didn't work out, but, uh, she and I were together for a good 25, 26 years. And what, what caused it to not work out? 
There's a lot that goes on with my health history that, you know, we were together from the ages of 16 and 17 and who we were at, you know, our late thirties was just, we weren't the same people as we were uh, when we started out or, you know, before all of the, the health hazards and mishaps that we stepped through, we changed. Um, marriage is tough without all those things uh, thrown in your path and all those obstacles and all those hurdles. Uh, so, you know, ultimately it was a hard look at how and we're happier as separate people, not a married couple, than we would be married. Got it. Let's fill in the gaps a little bit. So you go to college. What did you end up studying? Because I think you said they didn't end up having a film school. What did you end up studying in, in college? I went to college for filmmaking. I ended up doing, uh, getting a communications education, which had a lot to do with radio and television. Um, the way that my school worked, it, they, they told you flat out on day one, Television and film is so competitive, we don't, we don't expect you to actually get a job in the field that you're going to school for. So we're going to give you the most broad education as we possibly can. So it, it, it became a general education. And, uh, but what I did, I, I w again, was smart enough to get myself into trouble. Uh, but I had a very short attention span and not a lot of patience with my classes. So I would go to class for about two weeks and then I would start skipping and I would go to, uh, I would go to the television station and in, I don't know how the curriculum works now, but basically a lot of the, the classes at the times at the time would rip apart their television studio and say, your first assignment is due on X date. You've got to not only do the project, but you've got to put the television station back together. Uh, in order to make it happen. Here's, here's a manual, go. And so I would spend every waking hour in the television studio and I would put it together and I would make it better and I would, I would create television shows. Um, so, you know, my days back in college, they, I didn't have a school where a lot of money was being pumped into the, to the curriculum, uh, to the program. I had to make do with what I had and develop things that weren't there uh, to get the education that I wanted. And did you end up getting that education? I did. I did. Um, ultimately, I had to go outside the school, but I had enough experience from within the school to start uh, being a, a, a freelance camera person. They called it a stringer uh, for the local CBS affiliate out in Western PA where I went to school. So I was stringing for, for CBS and I started working on film productions that, uh, that just had a lot of resources that weren't available to me back at school. At that point, are you still just as passionate about film as you were as a kid? Oh yeah. So you were, and, and what was, what was the passion? Like why film? What was the draw for you? I loved the escapist aspect of it. I loved the ability to tell stories I loved the, the ability to use special effects and computers to make things that just didn't exist prior. So 
that's what I, I did in filmmaking. And, and I used the experiences that I took while I was going to college outside of college to start a career. And unfortunately, the career was great. The money wasn't. And so ultimately what happened was I couldn't put food on the table with what I was making as a filmmaker in the independent film scene in Philadelphia at the time. Um, I could have probably stuck around longer. A lot of my friends did, and they're still working in film today. What I did was I took my knowledge of filmmaking and computers and found a place that needed a lot of production content, which was a pharmaceutical company that had the money. And they, they paid me as a web developer, but that quickly turned into a multimedia producer, which included film and, and traveling around the world and interviewing physicians about how they treat people and how they prescribe drugs and, and how they look at you know, the disease states they were treating. And for a kid in his mid to late 20s, traveling around the world, following the top uh, oncologists are, were the people that I was following at the time. It was, it was a great job. It was, it was exciting. I got to do film production or uh, you know, video production. Uh, so I still had that aspect of it. I integrated it with technology. Uh, so there was a creative aspect there. And I started, uh, I started inventing technologies that weren't there. Uh, so it was a lot of going to Barnes & Noble bookstore and flipping open textbooks and having them out in front of technology didn't exist yet. It's interesting. I remember doing TV production in high school and we made a music video about Rocky Balboa and I was Rocky. My friend was Ivan Drago and we filmed it in his basement. And remember specifically, we had this scene where we were like doing the weightlifting scene and we had a shot in the mirror and the shot in the mirror, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were able to capture it through the mirror so that it actually caught me and you couldn't see the person videoing. And we didn't know what the heck we were doing. We just got to the editing part and we're like, Oh my gosh, how cool is that? And it just kind of <laughs> randomly happened. And, but I remember I love the creation part of that, but when it came time to the editing portion and we used to have those round editing knobs oh, that yeah. we would use to edit it, I, I didn't really enjoy that. And today with, with video production, uh, for amateurs, you can go in and use your Mac and cut clips and edit it. And, and I actually enjoy creating slideshows and creating videos and for my family. So I've come to enjoy that editing process. But I'm curious for you, when you're in that film mode, it sounds like you love to innovate and you love to create and you love creativity. But there's also this part that requires this perfectionism. This, I have to get it right and make sure that everything is clean. Which part of that did you enjoy more? I'm just curious to get into your mind from a filmmaking standpoint. Perfectionism is something that has always run deep. Um, but I am driven by creativity. So it, it's, it's something that I will, it, it's, it, it's just repetition. And you, you know, uh, there was a great mindset from music, which is if you don't do it, if you don't do it right, take it again from the top, go. So you, you, you play as hard as you could. Maybe it was the best time you've ever done it, 
but they go, all right, from the, from the top, do it again, go. What, doesn't matter how hard you tried, if it isn't what it was meant to be, or if it could be better, you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, until it's perfect. And so uh, there, there's an aspect that I inherited uh, from music, and music has a lot of those aspects to it, of, of the creativity uh, and the, the improvisational aspect of it, but you want it to be as good as it possibly can be. Yeah, one of the things that fascinates me about both music and film production is that people tend to go into those spaces because they like to create, they like to be creative, and they also require such a monotonous discipline to make sure that things are clean and clear and exactly the way they are. And you're talking about, as a musician, how you have to, you know, from the top, do it over, do it over, do it over. How did that experience impact you uh, as you continued on your career. So it sounds like the the filmmaking wasn't conducive to a career. You got into this healthcare world. Um, talk about how that background in music and the background in film helped you as you continued to progress in your career. Uh, well, really, the, there's, a, there's a, frame, a famous phrase that I, I got from when I was in music, and that's just one more once. Um, it's, it's never one more, it's never once. Uh, but, uh, I apply that to everything. If it's, if it's not, if it's not looking the way it should, or maybe I think I have something that's good as a, what I would call a safety, uh, you know what, if nothing goes any better, at least I have that one, you know what, let's try it again. Maybe we, we catch some lightning in a bottle. Maybe the planets align. Maybe we'll just get it better the next time around. So do it again. And, and walk us through what you continue to do in your career and, and how that mindset helped you. Did it hinder you at all? Uh, just take us, continue to fill in the gaps for us. Sure. So I was working at this pharmaceutical company and I was hired as an outsourced employee of this, this pharma company, but because the the space that I was working in had been the copy center for the entire facility where everyone would go to make photocopies. And now they wanted a, a website and an intranet and an internet. They were having me develop all that for them. And so I would come in and I would start work at nine in the morning and I wouldn't leave. Everybody would go home at five o'clock, but I would stay and I would work until 10, 11 at night. And that was what I did day in and day out. And I put time in on the weekends and I'd go home and open up my laptop and I'd continue to work. Um, it was, it was just ingrained in me to just keep going until I got it right. And ultimately they just said, well, we, we can't keep hiring you as an outsourced employee. We've got to hire you full time. I was like, oh, okay, do what you got to do. So I got a job by doing that. I got it. It, whether it was, in the band or in filmmaking or at a pharmaceutical company, I usually outworked everybody. Um, so it was just one of those things that when, as pharma, pharmaceutical companies do, one pharma company merges with another pharmaceutical company and they create larger, newer pharma companies. And so they came in one day and they said, hey, congratulations, everybody. 
our pharma company has just merged with another pharma company uh, out of uh, Germany. And our CEO is going to be taking the most fantastic golden parachute that anyone has ever seen. In the meantime, your division is being moved to, to Kansas City. So you, you will no longer have a job in X amount of months. And so I saw that as an opportunity. You know, a lot of people were freaking out at what's, you know, I've, I've been here all my life. What am I going to do? So I just used that as an opportunity to go to my existing clients within that pharma company, all the marketing folks. And I did what I called the Jerry Maguire moment. I said, you know me, you trust me. You don't know anybody in Kansas City. So I'm going to start my own company. Who's coming with me? Hey, Derek, Derek, real quick. So work ethic, you said you outworked everyone. You're there till 11 o'clock. I'm curious about where that comes from. That comes from a mindset of the job isn't done until it's done right. So I would invent new technologies if technologies didn't exist, or I would just massage code or artwork or design or what have you until it looked right. And then the second thing I'm curious about is in this moment, your Jerry Maguire moment, what allowed you to see opportunity where other everyone else saw obstacles and saw no possibilities? Why do you think you were looking at it as an opportunity? I don't know. I, 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 I think I just saw it as my job here is done anyway. I'm going to go get a job working. I can go get a job working anywhere else doing the same thing. Um, I know I have a marketable skill and I know I'm a hard worker. So it was just an opportunity to, you know, when, when the ground came out from underneath us and everybody was losing their job in my department, in the graphics and multimedia department, I said, well, what could it hurt? I'll just go and ask all these marketing guys if they would just rather give us their business instead of starting over a new relationship with some person working out of Kansas City. But being an entrepreneur, was that something that you had thought of or envisioned for yourself or did you always see yourself working for somebody? Um, I've always had that drive. I mean, I told you earlier that back in college, I kind of made up my own curriculum when I wasn't happy with what was being provided to me. Um, I kind of did things my way. And so I had that drive of, well, if, if what's being presented to me is not acceptable or not what I like, I'm going to work hard. I'm not going to slack off. I'm going to work hard to create something that I do like and something that is more beneficial. So it, it lends itself well to an entrepreneurial mindset. And so, so you have this moment, you're leaving, uh, who's coming with me and what comes next for you? Well, the, uh, the, the pharmaceutical company came with me. And so I started a new company, uh, called M3. And from day one, I mean, I, I moved it into my parents' basement. We started creating custom technology solutions. We, I had the, the reputation that if it couldn't be done, send it to Derek and Derek would figure out a way to do it. So that's what I would do. That was my reputation. And we turned that from that one pharma company 
into working with eight of the top 10 oncology brands in the world and turned it from me in my parents' basement to a, a, a standalone brick and mortar facility with about 35 employees. Wow. And it sounds like you are a troubleshooter. You're a problem solver. Hey, we can't get this done. Go bring it to Derek. What makes a good troubleshooter a good problem solver? Perfectionism yeah. um, and creativity. Uh, because there's a lot of people that will just work within the situation that's provided to them. And they can swim within those lanes, but if it's not working or if it's not meeting the need, the, the road just stops there. Uh, I've invented a lot of technology. I've, I've created a lot of custom solutions that just didn't exist before. And for me, the, the need always has to be met. Um, and, you know, I do enjoy working within a team. So I, I like working with, with various specialists from across multiple disciplines. And because I had had a little bit of experience in all of the disciplines, I was able to talk to everyone very easily, get across an idea and say, all right, well, this is what we're going to do, right? We all good. We're all good. All right, let's go. Let's do it. And what was it like for you leading an organization as opposed to, you know, it sounds like starting out, you're sort of, they were outsourcing you and then you became a full-time employee and now you're running an organization. What was that like for you? It was a natural progression. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I've talked about a mindset that I had and, and I had, as, as you know, I, I, I worked the job until the job was done right. And I wouldn't quit until it was done right. And I, I knew that I was missing out on a lot of my life, but I was in my mid to late 20s and I was still invincible at the time. So I had this mentality, this mantra that I would repeat to myself, knowing that I was missing out on life. And I would say that I wanted to work hard enough, long enough to make enough money to do all the things in life that money can't buy. Hmm. And to me, that was the win. To make so much money that I could do anything I wanted at any time. Um, and I found out shortly thereafter, uh, when I turned 30, that that's not a great way to live your life. It's not a way, that's not a great way to, for anyone to live a life because giving up life now, there's no guarantee that tomorrow, there, 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 there's a tomorrow. What changed at, at 30? I started having, uh, for, for lack of a, a better way of saying it, I, I started having bloody bowel movements and really disgusting stuff. And as I said, I was in my late twenties when I started, when this started, just turned 30 when this started. And I was still invincible in my own mind at that point. And I thought I would try and ignore that for as long as I possibly could, because it scared the crap out of me that it wasn't normal. It wasn't right. It shouldn't have been happening. So maybe it'll just go away and, uh, and I won't have to deal with it. But uh, after several bouts of, you know, of these experiences, I finally went to the doctor and they spent three months trying to find an, uh, an issue. Now, I had been athletic as a kid, but when I started working, I, and, and 
working the job until it was done right, I spent a lot of time sitting on my butt and eating fast food. Uh, so I put on weight and I was over 200 pounds, which on my frame is obese. And the doctors were checking me out and I just thought that it was me driving myself too hard, me not taking care of myself physically, me not working out, me not exercising, me getting older, turning 30. And had, I'd always heard, well, you don't feel as good as you get older. Things start falling off. So I just thought that that's what people meant. Um, but after three months of tests, where they stuck everything down me and up me that they possibly could to find out why I was bleeding, they, they cut me open as a last ditch examination to see if they could figure out what it was. And, and during the surgery, they woke me up, they brought me up out of surgery and said, Mr. Fitzgerald, this is supposed to be an exploratory surgery, but we found something that needs to come out right now. And uh, when I woke up from that surgery, they said, well, we, we pulled out a mass the size of a grape, grapefruit from your intestines. We had it biopsied. You have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it was... Uh, when, you, when, you, when you hear that and you're laying there, what does that feel like? It's a punch. Um, I was more angry at the physicians because by the time I had woken up from surgery, my whole family, my, my mom and my dad and my wife at the time were all standing around my bed and the, the physician team was standing around my bed with them. And I could tell by their faces that something was wrong. And so when the doctors told me, I knew that they had been told ahead of time. So in my mind, I was more upset at the fact that I didn't get a chance to manage that on my own, my health, uh, the whole reveal, um, how I chose to disclose that and who I chose to disclose that to and when I chose to disclose that was, was not available to me. And so I focused back on the issue and my mind works in steps. I don't look at big picture. I look at steps. So that's exactly what I asked the doctor. I said, all right, so what do I have to do next? Um, now what they said, they, they introduced me to my oncologist. In this process of the surgery, they had severed my abdominals uh, from just below my sternum to just below my belt line. And they said that I would have to go through physical rehabilitation to get to walk again, to get my abdominals functioning again, um, so that I was strong enough to go through the chemotherapy process. And so from December through probably March, that's what I did uh, back in 2003. And what's going on with your business as you have this transformational situation taking place? Well, thankfully at the time I had two partners that were able to, you know, distribute the workload amongst themselves and the team that we had put together. So business was fine. 
um, business was growing based upon the, the work and a reputation at the time. So I really didn't have to worry about that. That was continuing to generate revenue. I was still getting a paycheck. Um, so it was all good. And it allowed me to focus on my health. And obviously the physical health is daunting and challenging, but how are you mentally and emotionally going from this invincible 30 year old who's started a business, um, you know, eating what you want, doing what you want to now for three months, focusing in on, you know, getting stronger. What were you like mentally and emotionally? Um, it was scary. I mean, anytime you get a cancer diagnosis, you have to worry about, start thinking about at the end of your life. So the one thing that I, I, I guess I kind of took it maybe stoically is the word, but I've always been of the opinion that nobody promised me tomorrow and it was up to me to do the best with what I had with the time that I had and to just work with that. That's what I had to work with. So I went to work on the business of making myself healthy again. So I went to uh, physical rehab and I was the, the youngest person there by probably 30 to 40 years. But we sat around and we watched daytime soap operas. And as they were rehabilitating from their issues, I was rehabilitating from mine and slowly getting stronger and able to walk again and able to stand on one leg and, and able to, you know, crank an arm spin machine and all those things that require movement from your torso, which had been disconnected and severed. So um, for me, it was just step by step, day by day, put in the time, put in the work and do it again and again and again until you get it right. And that's what happened. You mentioned uh, that you're very good at just step by step. And I would imagine that's what helped you as a coder, as a filmmaker, but also as a CEO or as someone running a business, there has to be strategy and a vision. And for a lot of people, they can't see that vision. Uh, I'm curious for you, were there any downsides to you being so step-by-step and, and not maybe as focused on the vision? Because I'm hearing positives as far as like, you know, I didn't get so ahead of myself. I just tried to win every moment, win every day and, and just try to have small gains. But was there any downsides to not being more vision-oriented or strategic? Well, that's the, that's the thing. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, I'm extremely big picture oriented. Hmm. So I like looking at the big picture. I like finding a goal and targeting a goal of where I want myself to be or something to be. But then once I've mapped out my way to that goal, I also don't have an issue getting my head down and working my rear end off to make it all happen. And, 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 Sometimes I have the team around me to help and that's phenomenal. And sometimes I kind of have to take that ball by myself and run with it. Either way, I get to where I need to go or the project gets to where it needs to go. Um, so thankfully with the business, when I had to step away and focus on my health, 
my two partners were also very big picture oriented and uh and they had the people put in place to execute so um for me as a business owner it's i've always been more comfortable with coming up with the big picture and and handing it off to a teammate saying this is your expertise uh or several teammates and say here are our cross-discipline techniques here's how we're going to break this out. What do you guys think? Tell me what you think. Let's devise a plan together and let's, let's execute that. But you know, I've, I've had to do all the roles at one time or another. So I'm not above rolling up my shirt sleeves and, you know, getting into it and doing it all myself. Got it. So the framework for you is I, I set the picture, I have a vision, uh, very clear on where we want to go. And then you get really narrow in your focus and drill down on the process to get you to that out, outcome and that output. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, thanks for clarifying that. So back to your health. So you go through these three months. Um, how, did you, how did you end up uh, after putting in all that work? I was in the best shape that I had been in quite some time. And it was just enough to get me ready to endure chemotherapy. So I go in to chemotherapy and I, I sit down with the oncologist. And like I said, I had been traveling the world interviewing oncologists. Uh, I, I call it the time that I used to sell drugs <laughs> because I helped the pharmaceutical company market their drugs to physicians to help sell more drugs. But you know, I would be sitting around with oncologists talking about the state of cancer treatment over the prior two decades, and they described it to me very bluntly as stumbling around in the dark trying not to kill somebody. And I, <clears throat> at the time, I had no connection to cancer, but then I found myself with cancer. So I walked into that oncologist's office that first day, and he said, so Derek, what do you know about cancer? And what do you know about chemotherapy and how we're going to treat you? And it was, uh, it was an eye-opening experience to be sitting in the chair where it was actually taking place. And it gave me a perspective of the people that I had been hopefully helping uh, through my businesses. Um, but it, it certainly turned the tables on me. And it was a humbling experience uh, to be sitting there and, and knowing that, hey, um, you've got a life-threatening illness. There's no factoring one way or the other which way it's going to end up. But this is where you are. And and so, it was just putting your head down, doing the work. Uh, and then, what comes next for you after you sort of um, are able to go through that process and um, you know come out of it uh, alive? Well, <clears throat> I was thankful beyond words. And I took an assessment of myself and realized that I had let myself get far too out of shape. So I, I started getting back on the treadmill after I was declared in remission. And that was 2004. And uh, I realized very quickly that I was a lot more out of shape than I had expected. But I gave myself the benefit of the doubt because I'd just been through chemotherapy and cancer and all that stuff. Um, but it, within three months, had determined that it was more than just being out of shape, that one of the drugs in the chemotherapy regimen had damaged my heart in the process. So um, within three months of being declared in remission from cancer, 
I was diagnosed with heart failure. And Derek, how, how common is that? It's not too common, but common enough that I found out later that uh, my hospital had a billing code for uh, uh, chemotherapy-induced heart failure. Hmm. So, you know, it wasn't unheard of. And in fact, as they were administering the one chemotherapy drug that did the damage uh, when I was going through chemo, they say, hey, listen, we can hang all these other drugs from a bag and let them drip uh, automatically into your, into your IV, into your system. But there's one drug that can be extremely toxic to hearts. It, we're going to have to sit here and the, the nurse would have to put her thumb on the plunger of the syringe in my arm and slowly press the plunger over the course of a half an hour. Mm. So she said, if it feels weird at all, ever, you let me know and we'll stop it. Because if it gets outside the, the, the vein that we're in, it gets into the rest of the bloodstream, there's a 2% risk that it could damage your heart. Mm. But honestly, we know more about hearts than we do about cancer. So we're going to address the cancer now. And if we have to address any heart issues later, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Do you still want to proceed? And, and so I said, 2%? Sure, let's, let's give this a shot. And that's, that was my best chance at, at survival. So that's what we did. Um, unfortunately, I was part of that 2% mm. that had their hearts damaged. Um, so Derek, you had just gone through intense chemo. Um, you're painting the picture now to give people a sense of what that was like. Uh, now you get this other news delivered to you. How did you respond to that? Again, it was, it was the kind of news that feels like you get punched in the gut and your, your knees go weak where you just, you're like, come on. I mean, give me, let me catch a break somewhere. Um, and at the time when I was diagnosed, it was overnight at the ER. I had been making several trips to the ER, so many that initially my family used to go with me and wait all night at the ER. But I'd been so often that, you know, they just started staying home. I said, you don't have to come out here. I'm, I'm going to be home in a few hours. Get your rest. Uh, but the night that I was diagnosed with heart failure, the doctor said, I, I you know, I know you've had a tough year. I'm afraid I've got some more bad news. You're in heart failure. Um, you're on the verge of needing a new heart, but not yet. Um, we're going to try and use medications and diet changes and exercise to bring your heart function back up. But you're not in a great place. And if you have any family that you want to call, you should probably call them. So. I was like, oh, crap. You know, that's, that's saying a lot. Um, so I, uh, I got on the phone. I was crying, and I, I, I called my wife and then uh, called my parents. And, you know, I, I left the next day, and, and we started the process of I, – I should say that after I kind of collected myself, I went back into patient mode. And I went back into, well, I know what the, the goal is here, and the goal is to improve my heart function. So what's the next step? And, uh, and so the next step was actually meeting up with that same cardiologist. Now, at the time, I'll also 
provide some extra background information. My company had been doing so well that um, we had expanded from just oncology drugs that we were helping pharma companies sell into cardiology drugs. Oh and my gosh. As I had come back from chemo and was back at work, I was interviewing cardiologists about the state of treating heart issues. Wow. And so I had some, again, I had some really great contacts that I could reach out to, but I quickly went back to my partners and I said, we're, we're not expanding into any other verticals because I can't survive them. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and it was, it was a joke, but I was halfway serious because everything that, that we were making money on was killing me. How did that feel? Like knowing that, like knowing that dichotomy and like, wh wh how are you even processing that? For me, it was a level of insight. I was interviewing the top physicians first in oncology and then in cardiology, um, flying around the world and talking to the very best minds about, you know, what treatment had been and where treatment was going. So I had an idea of what I should be doing, but it, it takes a different perspective when you're the person that, that's going through it. Um, again, I knew that tomorrow was not promised. Um, I was having these episodes where my, I, I would be fine, I would feel okay, but then I would have a dizzy spell. And the dizzy spell, I would get weak, so weak that I couldn't stand up anymore. My head would go limp, my arms and my hands would fall to my sides. The world would spin. And for about 30 seconds, I'd have to ride this out. It felt like I'd been punched out in a, in a boxing match. Um, but after 30 seconds, I would get better. And I would have one or two a day, and it wasn't that big a deal. Over the following seven years, that 30 seconds turned into a minute, turned into an hour, turned into half a day, turned into me not being able to lie down in my bed anymore because my heart was too weak to pump the fluid out of my lungs. So I had to be propped up to go to sleep uh, until the point where I was sleeping 23 hours of, of a day, uh, where everything that I thought I loved to do, that I knew I loved to do, but that I thought made me who I was, was slowly taken away from me until I was just a body in a bed unable to do anything, hacking and coughing, coughing so hard that I thought my spine was going to snap in half. That every time I went to, that I closed my eyes and I went to sleep, I questioned if I was going to have the strength to survive a rest uh, and, and if, if I would open my eyes again or for the, if that was it. Um, and that's a, that's a long time to face death. Um, but it was... Uh, it was an experience that made me stronger, that made me appreciate life more. And, uh, and so it was around Thanksgiving of 2010. Uh, I happened to have a good day. And I had, on Thanksgiving, I'd had a better day. So I went and saw family and friends at Thanksgiving because everybody was together. And I picked a cold from being near everybody. And that cold turned into pneumonia. So I went 
for, I, I went to the doctor to get the pneumonia, pneumonia treated. After the pneumonia was treated, I went for a follow-up chest x-ray. And as I'm leaving the, the chest x-ray and I'm walking back to my car, uh, I get a call. I didn't recognize it. I pick it up and it's the technicians that had just completed my, my chest x-ray. And they said, Mr. Fitzgerald, we're not supposed to reach out to anybody without talking to our consulting physician, but we're holding your, your scans of your chest x-ray and it looks like you're having a cardiac event right now. Mm. So if you have a cardiologist, you need to get to him immediately. If you, have, if you don't, you need to get to an, yourself to an ER immediately. And it just so happened that I had a regularly scheduled follow-up with my cardiologist the very next day. Um, I called my cardiologist's office and I asked them if he had any availability that day. And they said no. And I said, well, I, I've got a, an appointment with them tomorrow. I'll just go tomorrow. Mm. So I didn't want to go to the ER because by that time my medical history was volumes thick and it just wasn't fair uh, to, to walk in and, and throw that on a, a consulting ER doc and figure that out within the time that I was there. So I just said, you know what, I'll, I'll be fine one more day. I'll go in tomorrow and we'll get myself checked out with the cardiologist who knew me, who knew my case. So I walked into his waiting room. I sat down in the chair. The nurse calls me back to the examination room. I walked back to the exam room. Uh, I was still married at the time. So my wife was right there next to me. She wasn't letting me out of her sight. I go into the exam room. I sit up on the bench and they take my vitals. And she goes, all right, I'll be right back with the doctor. She leaves the room. And as soon as the door closes, I collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so my wife had her arms up under my armpits, trying to hold me up, trying to keep me from falling off the bench. The door opens, doc sees me. He helps, he and my, my wife help me back up onto the bench. He tries to get a blood pressure reading from one arm. There's no blood pressure reading. Tries another arm and can't get a blood pressure reading there either. And he says, okay, it's time. You're, you're going for your transplant now. And at the time I was completely gray. I had, uh, the, my heart function was in the single digit percentage um, where you want it to be 55 to 65, maybe even 75%, which is normal. 50 to 60, 55, 65 is normal. At that time, mine was down to uh, like 8%. And in the days following, it went down to 5%. So that's really when I, 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 was, uh, I was in bad shape. And my friends and family were gathered around my bedside at the hospital, holding my hand, and I didn't even know that they were there anymore. Are you, did you grow up with any faith or religion in your household? Um, it's interesting. Uh, I've always found myself to be more spiritual than religious. Uh, so, um, I, I was in the hospital and my mom turned to faith. And so she asked if a priest could come in and pray for me. And I said, I don't know. I'm just, she's like, for me. And I said, all right, all right. So I, I knew it would make her feel better. And so, uh, he came in and, and prayed for me. Uh, at, at one time, my, I'm an only child. 
my parents loved me very much and, and they were freaked out. They turned to a psychic and the psychic said, Hey, listen, I can, we can, I'm here to help you. We can, it can go one of two ways. Um, all these things that they've, it, do you want to keep your existing heart and do you want me to repair it psychically or uh, do you want to get a new heart transplant? Because the way the transplant system works, you have to get worse. You have to be the very, very worst on the list of all the people that are in bad shape because the, the organs go to the worst first. So it's a, it's a weird dichotomy of how you have to hope to get better uh, by hoping to get close enough to death without actually dying to be able to be healthy enough to get this heart to have a shot at becoming better. Uh, and I said that I probably, you know, I was petrified of the heart transplant, but that was probably my best bet. And she's like, well, forget about all the things that your doctors tell you to do or not tell you not to do because I've got it under control. So eat all the fried chicken you want. My doctors have told me to stay away from chicken and high salty foods. Drink all the Gatorade you want. My doctors have told me to stay away from Gatorade. Uh, drink all the soda you want. Um, I've got it. I've got it under control. You're good. And I had been asked to, to meet with the psychic because my parents were scared out of their minds. Um, and hopefully it made them feel better. But uh, it really wasn't doing anything for me. And I, I said, ultimately, I said, listen, I appreciate your help, but I need to focus on my own way of preparing for what I'm about to go through. So thanks for your time, but no thanks. Um, so it, it was an interesting series of things that they went through while I was sick. Um, like I said, I stayed more spiritual. Um, I always had the mentality of hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And so I was prepared to die. And by the time January of 2011 came around, I was hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. But really, I was hoping for a change because I knew that sleeping 23 hours a day, as sick as I was, for the hour that I was conscious and awake and aware of what was going on around me, it wasn't a life. I wasn't able to do anything. And I either wanted to find a transplant and get a shot at getting better, or I wanted to die. And I, I just didn't want to stay in that limbo any longer. So you get a transplant. How does that go down? Flawlessly. Um, transplant coordinator walks into my room January 3rd, 2011. I happened to be awake and aware of what was going on at the time. She's crying. And she said, Derek, we think we found your heart. Do you still want to go through with this? And I looked at her and I said, I, I've got to do this, don't I? I've got to take this one. She said, yeah, you really do. So um, they had been talking about sending me to get an external heart pump to keep me alive until they found a heart. Um, so I, was the, I, I found out later that I was within 24 hours of death if they didn't do something. So as soon as I say yes, the, the coordinator runs out. She has to start preparing. My family starts crying tears of joy, knowing that I had a chance at life. 
And I start thinking about this other family that's probably surrounding another hospital bed somewhere else that is saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that, that was a tough thing to wrap my head around. Um, I was thankful for this person that, that they chose to save, to give someone else a chance at life on their last day. And it was, uh, it, it was an extremely humbling moment again in my life. So finally they wheeled me into surgery that night and I woke up the next day in recovery with tubes coming out of my mouth, coming out of my chest, um, all these machines surrounding me, high as a kite from the pain meds. The surgery is roughly the equivalent of being hit by a Mack truck. Your sternum's cracked, your chest is open, and you're alive. So I could hear a heartbeat beating through my body as I was laying with my head on the pillow. And I had forgotten what that had felt like. So being intubated, having the tube coming out of my throat, I couldn't speak, but I had an iPad there. So I was texting back and forth with my wife and just overwhelmingly grateful for the opportunity. Um, and so it, it, there's, I don't know how many more humbling moments there are or how much more humbling moments there are when you know that the only reason you're alive is that every heartbeat is someone else's and someone else made that choice to give up their, their, their heart to allow you to live. Do you know who that person, do you know who that person is? I do not. They Um, They don't allow that. They set it up like a closed adoption. And they tell you to wait for at least six months after your transplant to reach out because you're so heavily dosed on, on everything. They're not truly yourself. You're not thinking clearly. So I wrote six months to the day uh, to my donor family. They, I submit it to uh, my uh, uh, not uh, basically there's a go between. There's a go-between for the patient side and there's a go-between for the donor family side. And my side went through and read my letter and redacted anything that might be personally identifiable, then submitted it to the donor family's intermediary. And I know through those channels that my family received the letter, but unless they choose to return a message, there's no way for me to find out who my donor was or who they are. Um, and I, I, I respect that. I, I understand that they lost their loved one in this equation. Um, so as much as I would love to know more about the person that saved my life and the family they came from, unless they choose to respond, I'll, I'll never know. But, but what I do know is, is about the, this person's courage and generosity that saved someone else's life, a complete stranger's life on their last day, on their worst day, they're saving another person's life. For me, that's, that's the bar from here on out, no matter how much time I have left, that's the bar I have to meet. I know when, when people get organ donate organs donated, they often talk about personality changing and even sometimes um, drastic changes Obviously, you've got this moment where you're almost dead, 
uh, you're, you know, you're sleeping for 23 hours a day and uh, we'll get to where you're at right now. But did you change? Did you alter uh, with the new heart? Um, what did the people around, what would the people around you say about you as uh, after you got the heart uh, inserted into you? Um, well, one thing you're jacked up on steroids. So immediately following, and they're extremely high dosages, dosages of steroids so that you can manage the process of, of healing. And you do get a little short-tempered. You do get some, some roid rage, or at least small doses, small doses of roid rage. I was on a mission, and I had a goal in mind. And I, I knew that I wanted to honor the experience and honor my donor by taking care of myself. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to be the best custodian of their gift and the smallest portion of their legacy lives on through me. So it was up to me to take this experience seriously. Um, so uh, you, you may find some, some echoing in this, but I was still in the hospital and the, this nurse practitioner sits by my bedside with a bag of drugs and a three ring binder. And she says, this is the manual of how you're going to live the rest of your life. And you've got to manage your medications. You've got to manage your diet. You've got to manage your exercise. You've got to manage your state of mind. You've got to track all these things. These drugs, you're, you're on over 50 medications a day at extremely high dosages. These meds can be taken with food. These meds have to be taken without food. By the way, the dosages of steroids that you're on have given you transplant-induced diabetes. Unless you manage that within the first three months, the, the diabetes that you have uh, has an extremely high likelihood of becoming permanent, and you'll be on insulin injections and the, the, the like for the rest of your life. Um, and it, it scared the crap out of me. And I said, I know you don't know me, and you don't know what I do for a living, but I can do better than this. And she said, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, our doctors are the best of the best. So you could do something. You could take the time to build something better, but they're not going to look at it. And so it's, it's, it's useless. You're wasting your time. Just take this three ring binder, take, in, take all the readings and the measurements when you're at home, bring it back to us for every uh, appointment, and we'll tell you where to go from there. We'll tell you what your next steps are. And I said, yeah, 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 okay. And I went home and I built a custom technology around my recovery that managed my, my diet, my exercise, my managing my, my, uh, the, the medicines that I was on, when I needed to take them, you know, how much sleep I got, how much water I was drinking. Um, everything that could be managed was gathered fairly seamlessly through um, wireless technologies of, of heart rate monitors and, and things that I was wearing on my, my watch or, you know, various things that all fed into this system that I developed, which made a dashboard. And so the next time I went back after, uh, you know, my, for my next checkup, the same nurse came back in. I, she said, all right, so where's your three ring binder? And I told her I threw it out. Uh, but that I had this iPad for her to review. 
and add all the information that was she was looking for, all the dates, all the times. And then she's like, she, she turned white. She's like, wait a second. She runs out to the hallway and then th- she brings back in two more nurses and they're like, where's the three ring binder? And I, I said, she, she goes, he threw it out, but he built this. And from that moment on, I was the most compliant patient they'd ever seen. And all of the best of the best at the very best place in the world, they were all fighting each other to be the, the physician or the nurse that got to work with me. Mm. Um, so I, I was extremely lucky in that regard. But, you know, I was presented again with something that I didn't think it was right. I, I, well, it was the best that they were providing, but it wasn't the best that I could provide. So I rewrote it. And I built something that, that with my attitude and, and with the technology that I built around myself, um, I was just, my, my health was, and my recovery was jumping leaps and bounds further than, than they had expected. It's amazing. When did, when did fitness become something that you actually wanted to compete at? Well, the, uh, while I was still in the hospital, I was, I was only in the hospital for a week following the surgery. But while I was there, my, uh, my coworkers sent me a gift, which was Iron Man's heart from the movie Iron Man, the arc reactor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had never been in a, in a 5K, let alone a triathlon. And I didn't know what an Ironman was, but I thought, oh, this is really cool. Because I used to take the, the company out to movie days. We saw Iron Man. So this was proof that I had a heart. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, Iron Man, isn't that some kind of race or something? So anyway, in the process, they don't let you exercise at all for three months. They don't want you to be in a car unless you're going to the hospital for a checkup. Uh, they don't want you lifting anything heavier than a gallon of milk because your chest is cracked open. So um, as soon as I went through cardiac rehab three months post-transplant, uh, I, I was again taking things very seriously. And I went from an old man shuffle to a walk there and from a walk to a jog and from a jog to a run. And it was that point that a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to run in a 5K. And I thought, well, you know what? That's probably a really cool way for me to honor my donor and to just go experience life. And I've kind of pushed off life for so long and now I have a chance to go do a 5K. Why not? So I trained for this 5K. And at the same time I signed up for the 5K, I was enjoying my training. There was a half marathon in Philly that I signed up for. And I signed up with Team in Training which is the charitable exercise endurance arm of uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. So it was my way to raise money to help fight cancer and to give back. And while I was training for the half marathon, I look across this crowd of people that were were all there training together, training for the half marathon, and it happened to be one of the therapists, one of my therapists when I was going through cardiac rehab. And he looks at me and he says, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm going to go run a half marathon with you. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it, it was uh, extremely fulfilling. Um, I raised a lot of money through team and training uh, from that 
uh, first half marathon, I thought, well, what more can I do? So um, I signed up with team and training's triathlon team and I learned to swim and bike. Now I, I was comfortable in the water, but I, I'd never done any kind of organized swimming. So I was good at cannonballs and belly flops, um, but not an actual swim stroke of any kind, let alone freestyle. And so that's where they taught me to swim freestyle. That's where I went from. You know, the last time I had ridden a bike was I was in high school. And I, at that time I was 39, probably 38, 39. Um, and so I uh, learned a bike, added it to the running, and just kept going. By April of 2012, just over a year after my transplant, I did my first Olympic distance triathlon. And by the time I was doing my Olympic distance triathlon, I had already signed up to do my first half Ironman a month later. So it was just one of those things where I was so happy to be outside and alive and above ground and not locked into a bed, not locked inside a body that couldn't move, um, to be healthy, that every opportunity I had, I took to get outside and get moving. And at the same time, it was my way to celebrate the life that I had been given and honor the person that gave me that life. It's just incredible. What, what, advice do you give to people that haven't gone through the pain that you've gone through um, and the experiences that you've gone through? What, what sort of thoughts do you have for them? Well, I, I think about those people that don't get it. And I, I relate to them because I didn't get it for such a long time. And people will flat out ask me, I get some weird questions, but people will flat out ask me the, the question of how do you do it? How do you, you've got a heart transplant. You've got somebody else's heart beating in your chest, keeping you alive. And that's not going to last forever. So how do you live day to day with the knowledge that you could just go at any time? And I say, well, first off, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be given this chance of today. My question for you is, how do you feel? Because you, you have just as many issues. Maybe you don't have the medical issue that's forcing you to think about your mortality, but you could get, into, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen, but you could be crossing the street and get plowed over by a Mack truck. There's no guarantee, you know, that brain aneurysm, you know, whatever. People don't live forever. That's, you know, we all know this, but it sometimes it takes, it took me dying a couple times to realize this. And so, you know, my, my thought is I'm here right now. And I'm going to do everything I can to get the most out of today right now, because I know I have this. And I know, I've always known that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So you, you make the most of what you have today. And all of a sudden, people, people's thought process starts shifting going, damn, you know, he's, he's right. Nobody is promised tomorrow. You know, anything could happen to anyone at any time. Nobody knows you know, our time to go. So maybe I should make the most out of what I have. And then they start going, well, you know, the other thing I, I'm, I'm, I want to be very careful in how I present this because I don't think that cancer and a heart transplant is any more 
dangerous than anything else that anyone is dealing with. Everybody's problems are unique to them and they're enormous problems for each and every individual. Um, it doesn't have to be a heart transplant. You know, it, it could be whatever they're dealing with is the big thing that they're dealing with. And so it's not like a one-upmanship thing. You know, if they're dealing with something, they're, they're dealing with them. That's huge to them. But I see those obstacles. What, what I find rewarding is when they look at me and see the obstacles that I've overcome, and then they look at their own obstacles, they start thinking that they might be able to overcome theirs. And that's what's important. It's, it's so awesome. Um, to be transparent, I, my grandma, we buried my grandma yesterday. And so, yeah. And, uh, so I think anytime you go to a funeral, my grandma lived a fascinating life. She was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, two of her brothers perished in the Holocaust. Um, and she came over to the U S you know, at 19 years old, 20 years old and had an older sister here, but that was it and made an amazing life for herself. And so you leave that funeral inspired, but also realizing that life is precious. Uh, she very easily could have died at 19. She ended up living to 90 something. And, um, for me right now, I can even be honest, like I've got Achilles tendonitis right now and uh, I could use, I could lose a few pounds and get in better shape and, and you're hitting me at a really interesting time because tomorrow um, I'm starting with a personal trainer and you know, I've felt enough pain in my body that I need to change something uh, and your body gives you tips and gives you um, information if you choose to listen to it. And so this conversation is really inspiring for me at a time where I, I need to make some changes and I need to make some shifts. And hopefully I'm open enough and feeling enough pain that uh, I, I am going to stick to the behavioral change that uh, I know that that would be beneficial for me in my life. Um, I, I want to give you a megaphone to just close and, and, and just talk about what you're up to now. Uh, give people some perspective on, on what's going on in your life. Also, let us know where we can find the work that you're doing and uh, where we can follow you on social media and all that sort of stuff. Certainly. Thank you. I, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your grandma, but it, it, it sounds like she was an amazing woman and extremely inspirational uh, in, in what she overcame. Um, but, uh, but thanks for taking, taking the time today to, to interview me with all those things going on in, with your life. Um, and in terms of what you asked, uh, I've been able to start a foundation called the Recycled Man Foundation. And the whole mission behind the Recycled Man Foundation is to help improve people's quality of life, uh, people who have gone through significant health challenges. We, we help improve their quality of life by helping them become more active. And uh, there's, there's a whole, I'm sure that you, you're familiar with this concept is that when people go through significant health challenges, it's very easy to shut down. And, you know, the more they shut down, the more it impacts them from a physical perspective, but that also ripples into an emotional perspective. And if you've undergone some kind of significant health challenge, health challenge and it's incumbent upon you to stay compliant with your, your medication regimen or an exercise regimen or a diet regimen, you've got to have those emotional ties to the world to make those things matter, to make your life matter. And, and the, whole, the whole tagline behind the Recycled Man Foundation is fighting for a life worth fighting for. So we get up, we get active, uh, we help people get back on their feet after those, those challenges to make them realize that it's not just sitting in the, 
the, the easy chair watching daytime courtroom dramas all day long. There is life out there that's worth fighting for. And it means getting up off your butt. And, you know, it doesn't have to be an Ironman triathlon. It can be walking around the lake with your loved ones and your family and your friends. Um, but you've got to maintain those connections to the world. Uh, the other thing that I've been doing a lot of is just going out and doing speaking engagements. And uh, so people can uh, find me at recycledmanspeaks.com. And uh, I'm on, on the web, I'm on Facebook, uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, same thing goes with the foundation. Uh, that's recycledman.com. And then uh, the Recycledman Foundation is also on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as well. And, uh, and then I, have a, I still have a tech company, um, but I, instead of selling drugs uh, I, uh, for, for Big Pharma, I have taken my experiences with the patient population, the patient perspective, and turned it into a way to help improve people's quality of life through the use of technology. And that's Ironheart Technologies. And, and so they can find that at ironhearttech.com. And so uh, that's, that's pretty much what I do these days. And then I'm an, an ambassador for the Ironman Foundation. Uh, I'm a Trek bikes athlete. Um, and so the rest of the time, I, uh, I spend time with my, my wife. Uh, I, I, I was divorced shortly after transplant, but uh, have been recently remarried. Uh, I now have a five-year-old daughter. So as many amazing things that, have, that I've been given, the, the most amazing thing in the world is my five-year-old daughter. She would not be here had it not been for the generosity of so many other people. Um, so, you know, it's eat, sleep, train, work. And, you know, for the most part, it's just enjoying being a dad. Derek, in the early part of our conversation, we talked about winning and what is winning and what, what does that mean? And, you know, is it going into the band and getting a banner, uh, you know, up in the rafters. Yeah. And as I hear your story, like I think about you, you're, you're winning and uh, it's inspirational, but you're also real. You don't sugarcoat this stuff. Uh, none of this is sexy. Um, and you've sort of simplified some aspects of your life as far as your values and what you value and, and how you want to approach life. And the idea of gratitude is just oozing out of you. And, uh, for that, I'm grateful to connect with you, to chat with you. Um, this has been an extremely enlightening. And to be honest, I feel like we've got like another two hours in us because uh, we haven't even talked about your mindset when in an Ironman and, and perhaps people in here don't really realize how hard it is uh, to compete in an Ironman regardless of your, your uh, physical past and your medical history. Um, so perhaps we'll do this again sometime. Perhaps if you're in the DC area, we will uh, chat and uh, meet each other in person because this has just been a game-changing conversation for me and I know my listeners, uh, it will be game-changing for them. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Derek, really grateful to connect with you and uh, perhaps we'll have to fire up another one of these down, down the line as well. Sounds good to me, Brian. I appreciate your time. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. That every time I went to, that I closed my eyes and I went to sleep, I questioned if I was going to have the strength to survive a rest uh, and, and if, if I would open my eyes again or if that was it. Um, 
And that's a, that's a long time to face death. Um, but it was, uh, it was an experience that made me stronger, that made me appreciate life more. <laughs>